Hi, I'm Mark Finkelstein, Superintendent of the Educational Services Commission of New Jersey, and you're listening to the Jaffe Podcast. Special education doesn't come cheap in New Jersey, but one specialized school district has an answer. Find out in this week's Jaffe Podcast. You're listening to the Jaffe Podcast, brought to you weekly by Jaffe Communications. It's one of those rare issues every New Jerseyan can agree on. All children need and deserve an exceptional education, regardless of ability. The question is how to pay for it. Mark Finkelstein knows the cost of these services all too well. He's a long-term superintendent of the Educational Services Commission of New Jersey, based in Piscataway. It is the state's largest public provider of special education services, and Mark is a veteran educator with more than 30 years working for the school district. Mark, you'll see very soon, is a passionate and effective advocate for children with special needs. He's kind enough to join us in our podcast studio to give us context on how his school district continues to do so much more with less. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. And also in our uh, podcast studio today, we are very lucky to have the lovely Irene Lackey. Uh, Thank you for the invite. Who spends a lot of time um, at the... Yay! <laughs> Everybody's doing the wave. Uh, um, who, who does work a lot with the Educational Services Commission, so we thought she would be ideal to uh, come on and talk about some of the stuff that she's been up to. Absolutely. So to, where to begin? I, we thought that probably the best place to be would be kind of like to set the table as far as if you're a school district in New Jersey, um, you know that part of your budget goes to special education services, which is a very expensive uh, proposition year after year and we kind of wanted to get an idea from you that you've been doing this for you know three decades now um, what do you see as the challenges the problems and then we're going to also spend a lot of time talking about the solutions so so you can kind of just give us a general on, w- on what you're seeing in special education sure uh, thanks again for having me I Absolutely. think the biggest misconception Uh, when it comes to shared services in New Jersey is that people are always interested in saving money. Mm -hmm. That is not the case. We can show you time and again how even though you can offer a quality product with a reduced tuition, transportation at reduced costs, it doesn't always come down to cost efficiencies. So that's one of the biggest hurdles that we've had to overcome over the years and the reason for that is same old same old doing Mm -hmm. business with the same vendors Mm -hmm. uh, parents making demands upon school districts uh, and unfortunately a lack of accountability uh, from the higher-ups administratively and board members in terms of holding staff members accountable Mm -hmm. for their expenditures Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it's been a combination of those items in particular that have made the last several decades challenging in terms of people buying into the need for human resource and cost efficiencies. Mm -hmm. So have you been seeing in school districts that more and more kids these days are getting um, special services for autism, for other attention deficit disorder? You know, have you been seeing a growing trend in that area? Yes. Um, The rate of autism nationally uh, is the, it's the fastest-growing uh, area of special needs uh, internationally uh, as well. Um, but I think that's because of a number of reasons. Number one, um, up until 1991, 
there was no funding attached to the classification of autism. So students were classified in another area such as multiply disabled so that the district could receive funding mm -hmm. for them. Once autism became a formal federal classification, that's when the floodgates opened in terms of identifying, identifying students. Mm -hmm. Then more and more professionals became specialized mm -hmm. in terms of identifying students on the spectrum, mm -hmm. which added to the number of students who were classified mm -hmm. on the autistic spectrum. Mm -hmm. So yes, it's an area that we've seen the fastest growth. Uh, it's the area where we've seen the most public and private schools opening to address that growth. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about it. So a school district um, that has a, a student who has special needs that who cannot be um, educated within that school district because of very specific needs. And, and by the way, a lot of school districts have expanded um, their services internally, Absolutely. which I know that your group, is, Educational Services Commission, has been very helpful in helping with that. It's, it's, it's a priority yeah. for us in the future mm -hmm. to assist districts open their own programs, mm -hmm. yes. So what's been happening is, is that school districts can have um, these students served in their district. If, unfortunately, they can't, they need to go out, that they would have to go to either a private school or go to uh, the Educational Services Commission of yours or another one in the state. The question is, is how do school districts decide if they go public to, to operation like yours, or do they go private, which obviously costs a lot more money? Well, um, a little bit of history that mm -hmm. might be helpful yep. in terms of credibility. Uh, I was a director of special services in two districts for a decade, mm -hmm. in Perth Amboy and Woodbridge. And during that time, I oversaw five child study teams in Perth Amboy and eight child study teams in Woodbridge. Mm -hmm. So I think giving you that backdrop, it's good for you to know in terms of how I handle that of district special education placements. Mm -hmm. um, child study team members should be held accountable for any recommendation for a student they're thinking about placing out of district. Mm -hmm. So what we would always do is have weekly meetings and discuss their caseloads, but mm -hmm. in particular those students that they were considering for an out-of-district placement. Mm -hmm. I would always ask the question, why do we not have a program internally, and perhaps we ought to consider starting such a program. Mm -hmm. But if that was not a possibility, uh, have we first exhausted all public offerings, either a neighboring school district an educational services commission, a special services school district. And by law, what they call the least restrictive environment, the last step in that out-of-district process would be a private school. Mm -hmm. So the unfortunate reality of what's going on today with some districts is they go automatically to that last step of private without following the code of least restrictive environment. Mm -hmm. In the past, the Department of Education used to monitor this process very carefully. They don't do it anymore. Mm -hmm. County offices of education are short-staffed, and as a result, there's a lot less accountability from the state on monitoring the out-of-district process. Mm -hmm. Can I answer that question? It, it, it does, but it also creates a lot more questions. <laughs> a lot of questions. A lot of You know, I mean, I would say probably uh, the top one is – um, with everybody being, you know, so cost conscious, and you know, I understand. I think that you know your uh, tuition is can often be about half the price of a private institution. Easily, 
without and, and not including transportation, just tuition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and the other part that surprises me is that when you're a student at Educational Services Commission, whatever services you need, occupational therapy, behavioral therapy, whatever, it's all included correct under that basic tuition. That is correct. Now, if you go to a private school, you know, you the school the, the sending school district pays a certain amount of money, but then if there's other service that need to be provided, do those private schools then charge money on top for that? They do. Yeah, so I, I mean, like, how does it, I mean, how is that, I guess, how is that allowed? You know? Well, it's allowed because the Department of Education permits it. They permit a double funding schedule to be put in place whereby you pay $100,000 from September through June, and the state allows that private school to bill that same district during the summer for additional services to adjust their final tuition. Oh, okay. <laughs> but you don't. But Not only do we not, but our board of directors would never permit us to do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, our board approves our budgets on an annual basis. Once they approve a rate, say $50,000, this year it's 53000 for students that are on the autistic spectrum. That includes all related services from September through June. There's no such thing as a double billing. Mm-hmm. So that's all inclusive. How do they get away with it? It's the department. Don't forget... It's the Department of Education who not only approves the double billing, Mm -hmm. but it's also the Department of Education that approves the increase in tuitions for private schools on an annual basis. There's 180 private schools in the state of New Jersey. The state has approved an average increase for those schools of 3.5% annually. When you're working off of a six-figure tuition, 3.5% mm-hmm. annually is a significant mm-hmm. increase. Yes. Our tuition increases over the past 10 years have been 1% annually. <laughs> Go ahead, Irene. So how does your organization differ from a private entity? Well, I'm, I could tell you that qualitatively it's superior in terms of not just the quality of instruction but the professional training that's involved for our staff members. Every new staff member spends one full year receiving intensive training, depending upon what specialty area they're involved with, behaviorally disabled, mental health, autism, multiply disabled preschool. And that training continues after the first year. The problem that parents, the problem that school districts have is many of the parents believe there's an association between program cost and program quality. Mm-hmm. That's correct. Yep. Simply because a program costs $100,000 versus ours, which literally costs half, uh, we in, have to try to get districts to invite parents in so that we can show them that there's no correlation between excessive costs and the quality of the program their children receive. And and jumping now, if I was a listener to this, I would be like, well, all right, if that's the case, how is it that ESCNJ can do it for half the cost, and um, and what what is the secret? It's to me, it, if I was a parent, I would be uh, very pessimistic about that. Mm-hmm. And but there's a lot of other ways in which you raise money that people don't realize about. Yes, I mean, let's start by continuing to tell the truth, mm-hmm. and the truth is, we are nonprofit. Mm-hmm. Okay, which means that um, 
the majority of the 180 schools that are approved throughout the state of New, Jer New Jersey are for-profit, mm -hmm. which means that the State Board of Education and the Department of Education regularly monitors their expenditures mm -hmm. because the vast majority of the tuition that districts paid are going towards salaries and benefits. Mm -hmm. With us, it's a completely different scenario. We have a 31-member board that has to pay the tuition and transportation. Mm -hmm. So they go out of their way to ensure that tuitions are kept as low as possible mm -hmm. and that our budgets reflect that. Mm -hmm. um, the reason we're able to do this is through economies of scale. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be perfectly honest with mm -hmm. you, we have 1,800 employees. Mm -hmm. um, we build our facilities through bonding provided by the Middlesex County Improvement Authority mm -hmm. that are guaranteed by the freeholders because mm -hmm. of their AAA bond rate. Mm -hmm. Our professional development uh, is done in-house now, mm -hmm. so we don't have to send people out excessive distances. Um, but, you know, the, the truth is, over the years... We've really made a concerted effort to surround ourselves with the finest professionals in our in our profession, mm -hmm. and uh, it's a pleasure mm -hmm. to work with people who come up with new ideas uh, in terms of cost savings, human resource efficiencies, and quality of instruction. So we've gone from a, when I became superintendent, we were a $7 million organization, mm -hmm. and we were just interested in growth, and we're at a point now where we're trying to be much more selective in the types of projects that we're taking on for the greater good. Mm -hmm. And that's not easy mm -hmm. to do because every week somebody comes up with a new request and taking on projects that we're not going to be successful at is something that we're really careful mm -hmm. with. We're not a panacea. Mm -hmm. So what has over your 30 years, has any state legislator ever come up to you and said, I would like to introduce a bill that would basically state that if a child needs to go out to another to specialized services outside of the school district, that the priority should be a public school, that a public entity. Has there ever been legislation to suggest that? That is the law already. That's been uh, the law okay. in terms of an out-of-district placement. I mentioned earlier that right. least restrictive environment. The, the code right now, which is called Chapter two, chapter 28, mm -hmm. that's been in place since 1975. What a district is supposed to do is if they're considering an out-of-district placement, they should consider a public placement first. And then do they have to justify why they're going private? Again, as I mentioned earlier, there was a time when any time we would be considering an out-of-district placement, we would have to provide that justification right, to our Board of Education, to our superintendent, and then to the county office. Well, you should still be accountable to your superintendent mm -hmm. and your Board of Education, but the county office doesn't monitor that as closely as they used to. Wow. So, so there's basically no penalty to oh, ignore no. the law. Oh, no. Now. So um, it's a law that everyone just freely ignores. But There's no question uh, but, about that now. But, but meanwhile, the taxpayers are, are shout and scream at property taxes. They shout and scream at how much school districts are costing 
but nobody seems to be paying attention to this one area. What do you think, I mean? Well, that's, <laughs> that's one of my biggest concerns. They can put it through, but it's not put out to the taxpayers in the town. So you get a bill and says it's $100,000 per student. And then at the end, you get a bill that says it's $150,000. Well, somebody has to pay that extra 50000 per student where it doesn't cost that much in a facility with ESCNJ. So why is it that the taxpayers aren't uh, notified? More or, involved yeah. in the process. Well, the taxpayers put their trust in their boards of education and their superintendents of schools. And from our experience, and we work, as you know, with a lot of superintendents and boards of education, the vast majority of those concerned do hold their child study team members accountable for their actions. However, not everyone. Mm -hmm. We also deal with child study teams and with directors of special services who apparently go out of their way to place students in, in the private sector knowing that comparable, if not better, public programs through the commission are available in the same geographic area. We brought these concerns to the to the attention of the superintendent and the director of special services. But to date, in some of those districts, we've seen little progress. And what do you think we could do to change that? There's only way, one way to really enforce it, and that's through the Department of Education becoming a, a much stronger force at the county level in overseeing the activities of the local districts. Mm -hmm. And that could easily be done mm -hmm. with the proper directive from Trenton. Do they come into your facilities and look and see what you have to offer? Yes. Yes. Um, we used to call it monitoring. Now we call it QSAC in New Jersey. But the concept is the same. I mean, there, what really needs to be done is there needs to be justification. Mm -hmm. Districts need to be able to justify each out-of-district placement and what efforts they made for that out-of-district placement to be made in the public sector before deciding upon a private placement. Mm -hmm. That's what needs to be done. Uh, I can think right now of a district that, uh, in our county that, um, as amazing as this sounds, last year from September through March, they placed 31 students in a private school one mile away from a commission school uh. in Cerebral from the Center for Lifelong Learning. Mm. The tuition for each student was $76,000 in the private school mm -hmm. versus 53000 mm -hmm. at our Center for Lifelong mm -hmm. Learning, excluding an additional 25% for transportation for each pupil. So we had the director of special services in from that district, mm -hmm. and there are four other supervisors in that district. Mm -hmm. And we asked them that question, mm -hmm. And what they said was we felt they felt that um, the school they placed the students in had a more challenging curriculum. Okay, whatever mm -hmm. that may mean, we modified our curriculum mm -hmm. to make certain that it was equal to, if not superior, to that mm -hmm. private school's in terms of cognitive challenges. Mm -hmm. We're still waiting. <laughs> We're still waiting for the first student from that district. Is it a? Is it a? I, I, we don't want the name of it, but is it a small district or a big district? Uh, it's yeah. a district with over ten thousand students. Okay. So the point here, of course, is 
um, a the district is is needlessly spending millions of dollars mm -hmm. truly mm -hmm. on tuition and transportation where it doesn't have to. Number two, the students are receiving an inferior education. Mm. And number three, and I really, I can say this, growing up in New Brunswick, having my whole life um, experience through the urban experience, child study team members in urban districts are dealing with one-parent families, they're mm. dealing with non-English speaking families, and unfortunately, a lot of these parents may not know the law mm -hmm. to the degree that suburban or more affluent parents might. And as a result, um, these types of placements occur without closer scrutiny. Mm -hmm. That's disturbing. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that really bothers me a mm -hmm. lot. Mm -hmm. um, let's, um, let's move over to happier topics then. Okay. So <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm happy. I'm just, I'm just frustrated by that because it... A, a student shouldn't be penalized simply because of geography. Yes. Right, especially a facility like CLL. I mean, it has so much more than just right. educational. It has the right. pool and the aquatics and a fitness. Right. I mean, it really does, you know, mm -hmm. have, encompasses yeah. everything. And that's the facility right. in Cerebral that's run by ESCNJ. Yeah, I mean, think about this. Child study team members control the process. Mm -hmm. They control where they are taking parents to visit. So if they bring a parent to Future Foundations Academy or the Center for Lifelong Learning mm -hmm. and they see the weight room, they see the workout center, they see the aquatic center, mm -hmm. obviously the brick and mortar is a start that's mm -hmm. very attractive to get mm -hmm. them through the door. But if they're never exposed to any of our programs and they're taken only to one private school, um, the end result is, in all likelihood, the district wants that child placed there and their parent's going to go with it. That's the frustration. Another um, frustration, I think this is something that, that you guys have been solving, is the fact that um, kids age out of schools. Okay, So I think in, in special services, you're, you – Public schools are responsible between ages three and twenty-one. Yes, that's okay. I've learned so much from you. This is amazing. <laughs> I mean, but uh, anyways, but after twenty-one, typically, what has been happening? Look, we've spent, and I started as a teacher in Cerebral mm -hmm. uh, back in nineteen seventy-three, mm -hmm. and um, guy. we've gone <laughs> from a situation where we build all these schools, we have all these great programs. And then the students age out because there's no federal funding or state funding which is available for public school districts past the chronological age of 21. Mm -hmm. I mean, somebody came up with that miraculous number years ago. So as a result, we've been so intent on, on the 18 years of 3 through 21 that we haven't spent enough time on worrying about what happens to these kids after they age out. Mm -hmm. So we did two things. We started a program several years ago in Cerebral with Mayor O'Brien called the Pathways to Adult Living, mm -hmm. which allowed for students between the ages of 18 through 21 who may have satisfied their high school graduation requirements but uh, had no skills to learn a, to work at a job mm -hmm. and no independent living skills. Mm -hmm. Right. So I want to interject for a moment. That is one of the differences between the public school and an organization like yours. 
you teach community-based instruction, which is going to give the student an upper advantage in the workforce and with daily living. Can you just elaborate just a tiny bit on that? Because yep. I think Good that point. is something that's really important. It is. Thanks. Of our uh, 725 students that are enrolled in our special education programs, about 500 of them are involved in community-based instruction. Community-based instruction allows for the students to be transported to job sites uh, every school day mm-hmm. um, for at least a half of the day, uh, and the students continue their job, um, the activities on the job, on weekends and evenings. Mm-hmm. The idea of this is we have 87 employers right now that provide payment mm-hmm. for work done by our students. Mm-hmm. So and give us an example, like the, the rest areas on the, on the parkway, um, retail stores, restaurants. Retail stores, restaurants, hospitals, uh, athletic venues. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the students, some of the students are involved in higher skill jobs such as cashiers, maintenance, stock mm-hmm. surveys. Some are involved with Wakefern in terms mm-hmm. of shopping carts, mm-hmm. stocking shelves, Rutgers Stadium. Mm-hmm. Um, Personal pizza boxes, St. Peter's Hospital, cleaning out the trash. Popcorn for the people. Popcorn for the people is a a big employer, not just for us, but statewide, absolutely. And so this is all about getting them to the point when they're 21 years old and that then they can perhaps continue in these jobs or that they have something something on their resume that they can do something that's – you know, um, it's vast, a market rate job. Yeah, the vast yeah. majority of the students that have graduated or aged out from New Jersey school districts and, and nationally up until this past decade, the vast majority of them have either gone into group homes, Association for Retarded Citizen, mm-hmm. Settings for the Day, Sheltered Workshops, or, and the largest portion, has sat home for the rest of their lives sitting on a couch, gaining weight, having medical problems, and becoming a ward of the family Mm -hmm. until another family member could take them on and um, until they passed. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the reality of what special education has really been. Nobody wants to say that. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to give people false hope, which is unfortunately what we've done in special Mm -hmm. education over the years. We've given parents false hopes. Mm -hmm. No. You're not, your child is not going on to higher education. Your child is not going to a trade school. But your child can work at TJ Maxx next year, mm-hmm. and hangers hang better than anybody else mm-hmm. is able to do that. And your child is eventually going to be able to live independently mm-hmm. and will be able to do their laundry mm-hmm. and cook their breakfast and lunch and dinner and make their own bed that's now reality mm-hmm. with so many of our students. Mm-hmm. So the community-based instruction program is a big step in that direction. That takes care of responsibility on a day-to-day basis. Kids get a paycheck. Kids balance a check account. Kids pay for things on their own. Kids now know how to take NJ Transit. They can read a bus or a train schedule. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're contributing members of society. 
And isn't that what education should be all about mm -hmm. to whatever degree? Mm -hmm. Right. So the Pathways to Adult Learning program are kids that graduated from the public school who did not get that type of instruction. And now they're in that facility and they'll, they're learning to do all these other tasks Correct. so that they can go on at 21 and, you know. Yes. Yeah. By the time they're finished with us during those three critical years, yeah, they should be able to work independently. They should be able to live independently. And they've really honed the skills that they did not learn uh, even though they were issued a high school diploma. Let's talk now. So that's kids who are between, typically between the ages of 18 and 21. Right. Let's talk about post-21. And I think that this is one of the, the neatest things that is very unique in New Jersey where, again, it's no longer the public school district's responsibility once we hit 21. Tell us what ESCNJ is doing for those kids. Yeah, those, well. Those adults, actually. Yeah, our board, um, which uh, really I have to tell you that I, I know it sounds ominous to have 31 board members. Mm -hmm. It's the most united board I've ever worked with. And I was on a school board for 17 they, years. They should all go into Congress. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. But they, they really are the template for boardsmanship, in my opinion. Um, they supported us years ago when we said, okay, we've got all these programs, but we've got no place for these kids to mm -hmm. go. Yeah. So the first thing we did was uh, when we purchased land in Cerebral for the construction of the Center for Lifelong Learning, mm -hmm. which was 12 years ago, mm -hmm. um, it was understood that we would purchase an additional 10 acres to eventually build a facility on it for the post-21 population. Mm -hmm. So we, we own that land. Mm -hmm. In addition to that, the board authorized us to pursue an application with the Department of Developmental Disabilities and Medicaid to start a program this January, starting with 40 adults, mm -hmm. which would be a day program that would mirror mm -hmm. the 18 through 21 program that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. uh, the difference, the significant difference, is the funding mm -hmm. for the program. Mm -hmm. Unlike the 3 through 21 population where you pay one tuition, mm -hmm. after age 21, it becomes a pay per service need mm -hmm. provided by DDD mm -hmm. and Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And it also, um, the payment is based upon student attendance. Mm -hmm. So if you have a student who's medically fragile and misses a great deal of school, you only get paid for the days that the student's in attendance. Mm -hmm. So the majority of the workers in this program are per diem or per hour mm -hmm. employees. So it's a whole different set of regulations involving this program. Okay, and I think that the best way for our listeners to understand this program would be we should tell the story of what happened um, this, this summer in Cerebral. And this was with the recycling program. Mm. And what happened, which was, which was very unique, is as anybody who has recycling at their house knows that the recycling laws have changed drastically in New Jersey or, or nationally. Um, and um, basically, it's a lot. You can't just throw out a lot of stuff you're used to when you're recycling. So, what the PAL program has done and did in Cerebral was it basically was a pilot for the entire state, where they had these uh, these kids. Well, not these kids. I keep saying kids. These adults with um, uh, an ESCNJ uh, staff member walking through the neighborhoods in Cerebral uh, and educating um, residents about what is recyclable and what isn't. Um, and then putting tags on the, the, the trash of what was good and what was not. Um, programs like that, 
through, through you are, one, it, it provides a great service, but two, I think what it does is it, it's a great pilot for other places. And I'm curious how, what your reflections were on that program and if you see something like that as, as a growth opportunity for the over 21 population. Uh, that was a long question. Yeah. I apologize. Oh, no, it's a good, <laughs> qu it's a good question because it, it allows for a number of different responses that are really important. The program that you're talking about was a grant that the borough of Cerville received uh, that allowed for our students to be hired on an hourly basis to review the refuse, refuse of residents throughout the borough for recycling purposes. Of course, the borough of Cerville has a long, a 20-year mayor by the name of Kennedy O'Brien. Mm -hmm. Kennedy O'Brien is someone who was extremely sympathetic toward our students, not in terms of sorrow, but in terms of what can I do to help them achieve. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if you have the right elected official, whether it's in a borough, a city, a township, whatever, it's incredible what can be accomplished. Mm -hmm. The mayor allowed us to locate property that now is called the Center for Lifelong Learning, where we educate 188 students daily. Mm -hmm. The mayor identified a storefront for the Pathways to Adult Living that allowed us to start that program. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he allowed the, the, the borough to hire students for the recycling program, but he's done so much more than that. Uh, the borough has a cerebral day every year mm -hmm. in which he allows us to have a table mm -hmm. to market our programs and our students and everybody's in attendance. Mm -hmm. He really brings a positive light upon the program in terms of quote-unquote mainstreaming normalcy, mm -hmm. if you would. So the people surrounding us are much more accommodating because the highest elected official in the borough mm -hmm. uh, has given his stamp of approval mm -hmm. and support. That's true. That's terrific. I, I do want to, um, in the time we have left, I did want to spend a little bit of time talking about your professional conference center. Now, people listening to this are like, is there anything that this group does not do? <laughs> um, I have yet to find it. Um, however, um, I do want you to spend a couple minutes about the professional conference center. You guys um, had a ribbon cutting a couple of weeks ago, attended by a lot of um, esteemed dignitaries in New Jersey. And we want to hear a little bit about the rationale behind it. Yeah. and uh, your hopes for it. Yeah, it's exciting. Thank you. Um, well, first of all, as our organization has grown over the years, we've realized that our, our facilities have not kept up with that growth. Mm -hmm. Amazingly, we w we've gone from, during my time as superintendent, from 300 employees to 1,800 employees. But we did not have a facility to accommodate all of our employees or at least a substantial number of employment employees at any one time for a meeting. Mm -hmm. This is a step in that direction. Mm -hmm. um, the other biggest problem is and continues to be so many of the professional conferences that our staff members have been attending over the years have either been out of state in, in far-reaching areas of the state where they had to travel excessive distances, uh, which and the costs were, were piling up. Mm -hmm. We've got so many resources available in the central Jersey area that we've not been taking advantage of. Johnson & Johnson, Squibb, the Hyatt, 
Rutgers University, all the research that goes on in the region, Princeton University, mm -hmm. 13 miles away. Mm -hmm. So we made a decision to build a world-class conference center mm -hmm. that would mirror more of the corporate type environment as opposed to a public school environment. Mm -hmm. And by doing so, we would hope to attract the non public, the non-educational sector to generate revenue, which would pay for programs for the educational mm -hmm. yep. folks that, mm -hmm. that would be taking advantage of this. Mm -hmm. So the idea now is to have a conference center open to the public, which would pay for itself, reduce travel time, uh, be safe, uh, have all the electronic bells and whistles anyone could ever be looking for, mm -hmm. and house it in close proximity to a school so that we never lose sight of yep. where our mission is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with with plenty of parking, and it's right off uh, Stelton Road in Piscataway. Stelton Road, 287, the Turnpike, the Parkway. I mean, it's a very accessible 18. Route 18. Mm -hmm. It's very accessible, locate, very mm -hmm. safe location for a mm -hmm. lot of people, mm -hmm. and that's a major consideration mm -hmm. for staff members mm -hmm. and parents. Mm -hmm. it, it is exciting that ESCNJ is, is working to build new bridges with the Middlesex County business community and the Central Jersey business community. Yeah. And it's, it's, I like that it's breaking into whole new areas um, for 2020. You know? Yeah, the, the whole idea was, and there's, I mean, there's a lot of history on this. Mm -hmm. There are 10 educational services commissions in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Our commission made a decision at least a dec at least 15 years ago. We could have either been very comfortable and go along with what we were doing and what the other nine educational services commissions were doing, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. we could be much more responsive to the changing needs of our constituents, mm -hmm. survey them annually, mm -hmm. and take calculated risks in terms of what they were looking for. Mm -hmm. And without that mindset and without the support of our board, um, we wouldn't be where we are today. And quite honestly, um, the other nine educational services commissions, they continue to exist and they continue to provide services. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure their programs and services are of extreme value to the people who take advantage of them. Mm -hmm. We have gone in a completely different direction of going statewide, out of state, uh, through economies of scale, through our co-op, which we mm -hmm. haven't had an opportunity yet to talk about. There's so much more we've been able to accomplish. Mm -hmm. You know, actually, we do. I think your business administrator would hang us if we didn't mention the co-op. <laughs> so uh, yeah. we should probably spend a minute or two ab about this actually terrific yeah. program. And if you could explain sure. the co-op and also how that helps the educational side of the uh, operation? Well, first of all, our business administrator is Mr. Patrick Moran. And uh, Mr. Moran has been with the commission for a year longer than I have been, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it's about 30 years for him. Mm -hmm. And one of his strengths, aside from construction, mm -hmm. and he's overseen the construction of six schools in the last 30 years, another one of his strengths is to be given a task that nobody else wants to get involved with, mm -hmm. that offers a real challenge, mm -hmm. and make it happen. Mm -hmm. So he traveled 
almost 20 years ago, he traveled to every one of the counties throughout the state, mm -hmm. met with the business administrators, and established what we now call the ESCNJ Cooperative Pricing Program. Mm -hmm. And every school district in the state of New Jersey is now a member. There are over 1,300 members, which makes it the largest pricing co-op in New Jersey. And uh, we are also part of a 22-state purchasing consortium, which last year amounted to a, about a billion and a half wow. dollars in purchases. <laughs> but the bottom line is the uh, revenue that the commission realizes through the purchases in the co-op are turned right back into our educational programs and pay for wheelchairs, mm -hmm. uh, pay for spe specialized training, pay for counselors. All the little pieces, the extras that we're able to offer to our students that we might not have been able to provide previously, we're able to pay for through the co-op. And that's why we've been able to keep our, our tuition increases at 1%. Mm -hmm. So it's taken me a long time as an educator to really understand the value mm -hmm. of the co-op. Mm -hmm. But we could not exist to the degree that we do now educationally mm -hmm. without the co-op subsidizing our programs. How does one become a member of the co-op so that they can benefit from their, uh, from the cost savings? Yeah, that's, that's probably one of the easiest processes uh, that that one could imagine. They simply have to, um, they can explore that through our website. ESCNJ.us. ESCNJ.us. And there's a link specifically for our co-op on there. And it's simply a matter of following the directions on the, on the link. And there is no cost for anyone who wishes to become a member. Mm -hmm. It's cost-free forever. That's great. Mm -hmm. Forever. So you have, there's so many businesses that attributed their success, um, I would say, to ESCNJ, and also the amount of jobs that have been created through the co-op. Yes. That's another interesting stat one day to see, like, the, the fiscal impact of having this entity. You've created a lot of businesses. A lot of businesses. Um, I know that there are some businesses that have really, really taken off. I can think of one last year. They did about $55 million in sales just through our co-op oh, in one year. That's wow. amazing. Yeah. This year, I know we're doing purchasing for NJ Transit. Mm -hmm. We had special legislation passed recently just so we could do that. And we're also providing purchasing power now for the city of Philadelphia. Okay. So those are two of our growing and accounts. what you do is that you handle um, – it's not – and just so I understand this, it's not that you basically, like, are connecting the vendors. They have to fill out RFPs. There's all of these, yes. I would assume, you know. Anytime, anytime that we have a new idea that we wish to explore, we first have to go through the Department of Community Affairs for approval mm -hmm. to put out an RFP, to put out a bid for that. For example, uh, someone recently called me um, – to uh, have media uh, relations similar mm -hmm. to what Jaffe does mm -hmm. offered through the co-op. Mm -hmm. We've been through this many times over the years. Number one, districts really, they can talk about it, but they really have not expressed an ongoing interest 
in that type of service. Mm -hmm. Some may individually, but the vast majority, there's not enough of an interest for us to put it on the co-op. Mm -hmm. If we did put it out there, we would first have to go to DCA for approval, right. and then we would put it, put it out for bid, uh, and then whoever responds to the bid uh, and scores the highest, uh, it would then become a member of our co-op mm -hmm. uh, for bidding purposes. Mm -hmm. That's actually interesting that, like, so businesses, that there are, it's not that, you know, you just call up BCNJ and suddenly you're getting floods of um, business your way. I mean, there are uh, procedures that are, that need to be in place. It's actually uh, our business, we have four purchasing agents mm -hmm. in addition to our business administrator. And the process is very, very rigorous mm -hmm. and um, extremely competitive. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, we just literally just approved uh, $6.4 million in the addition to upgrade our health and fitness center uh, at, at the Center for Lifelong Learning. Uh, we had over 30 bidders wow. for that project, and it was very, very competitive. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's yeah, not a matter but, of just putting right, in yeah. and, and being granted a but, bid. But what it, it does also mean that for the members of the co-op, that the, the quality of the vendors that you're making the connection with are the, probably the best in the business for what they do. And that, you know, you do provide that good housekeeping seal of approval. And I think that that's probably one of the reasons why you're so successful. I would say that Mr. Moran and our staff in particular with regard to the co-op, and, and I would transfer that out to any aspect of our commission. Mm -hmm. uh, it's all about the quality. It's all about uh, being honest with people. It's all about uh, coming through on a promise that whether it's provide a service for an autistic child or get the best price for vehicles for a district, your reputation in the end is what we have in our profession. Absolutely. Well, listen, Mark, we want to thank you very, very much for being on uh, the Jaffe podcast today. Appreciate and, and it. We want to also thank Irene Lackey. Thank you for, for inviting for, me. For joining us. And, um, Always you. a pleasure. Yeah, it was fun. And if you want to learn more about the Educational Services Commission of New Jersey, and there's plenty to learn about, uh, you can visit them at escnj.us. And also, I'm sure Mark would love for you to take a tour of the Professional Conference Center. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful idea. <laughs> and again, thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it. The Jaffe Podcast is a production of Jaffe Communications, which is solely responsible for its content. Episodes may not be reproduced or rebroadcast without permission. Our executive producer is Jonathan Jaffe. Our editor and production manager is Josh Frank. And our theme song was composed by David Siste. For more episodes, visit jaffecom.com or find us on Facebook at Jaffe Communications. Thanks for listening. Join us next week.